0: Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. God told Moses to choose 70 elders. The Lord said to Moses, gather 70 men from the elders of Israel, who you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, bring them to the tent of the meeting. And I will come down and I'll talk with you there. And I'll take some of this spirit, which is on you, Moses, and I'll put it onto them, that they shall help you bear the burden of this people that is with you, because you cannot bear it alone. And so God took the spirit that was on Moses and put it on these 70, so they can help rule and govern these grumbling Israelites that are numbering thousands. Moses went out, told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered 70 of the elders together. He placed them around the tent. The Lord came down in a cloud and spoke. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. They started prophesying. Now there were two men, Eldad and Medad, that happened to get in on it. They had remained in the camp and they weren't supposed to be there and the spirit happened to rest on those two as well. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out of the camp. So they started prophesying. The spirit felt on them too. And some of the men were jealous and they ran to tell Joshua. And Joshua came to tell Moses and he said, Moses, Moses, there's two that we weren't supposed to get it and they got it and they're prophesying. And Moses said, Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? Oh, that all men would have the spirit of God upon them and be able to prophesy. And that's what you got at Pentecost. That's what we all got, the spirit of God indwelling us. Moses took, after this covenant in Exodus 24, he took those 70 elders up to the mountain of God. They got to eat with God. Remember? They saw the pavers. They saw the sapphire stones. They saw the feet of God. And they beheld God, and they ate and drank with God. Because when you seal a covenant, you have a meal together. So... On the feast of Sukkot, the Jews will take 70 bulls and sacrifice the 70 bulls, one for each nation, because they know God is the God of all the earth, and there be light to all the nations. So he's sending out 70 today. It's only in Luke. 70 are appointed. 70 go ahead of him. Who were these 70? Who were these 70? Don't you want to know who they were? We know the 12, but we do know who they were. There's a record of a pseudo Hippolytus. Who's he? Well, Jesus Christ had a follower named John, his youngest apostle, John the evangelist. And John had a follower, a disciple named Polycarp. Remember him? He smelled like bread when he burned to death, when he was martyred. And Polycarp had a friend named St. Irenaeus. And Irenaeus had a friend, a follower, a disciple named Hippolytus of Rome. And Hippolytus died in 235, but he was a very prolific Roman church father of the third century. And he wrote in Greek. And Greek was the language of the Bible until then. He's the last one who wrote in Greek. When Jesus read the Old Testament, he was reading Koine Greek. Greek was the language Alexander the Great had brought in Greek when Greece ruled. Hippolytus had wonderful scripture commentaries, but they're all in Greek. And so a lot of them got forgotten or never translated because that wasn't the language anymore. And so now we're finding some of his works and translating them now because translation's easier now. He has a wonderful commentary on Daniel, including Daniel 13 and 14, which Protestant reformers threw out. Catholic Bibles have Daniel 13 and 14. Wonderful. And his numerous commentaries about interpretation of scripture. He's a martyr. He was drugged through the streets of Rome by horses until he died. His feast day is August 13th. The Eastern Orthodox also celebrate him. But he has a list of the 70 in Greek, and those were translated. So he tells us all 70. I just picked out the first few to show you that you'll recognize some of them. James, the bishop of Jerusalem. Cleopas, remember him? Bishop of Jerusalem. Matthias, the apostle named to replace Judas. Thaddeus, Ananias, who baptized Paul. Stephen, the first martyr, deacon. Philip, who baptized the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Pregoras, Ninekar, Timon, Parminius, Nicholas. Barnabas, you know him, Paul's friend, bishop of Milan. Mark, the evangelist, bishop of Alexandria, Egypt. Luke, the evangelist who wrote this one of the 70. Now it says that Mark, Hippolytus writes this, that Mark and Luke belonged to the 70, but they scattered at the offense of the word, which Christ spoke in John six, when he told them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have life within you. Luke, the physician couldn't take that. He's not drinking blood. He's a physician. This was too much for him. And he left that day. And he said to the 12, "Will you also leave. And they said, Lord, whom do we go? You, you have the words of eternal life. Well, Luke left and Mark left that day. And it was Peter, Hippolytus writes, it was Peter who evangelized Mark back to the fold. And it was St. Paul who evangelized Luke back to the fold, explaining that to them later. So, those are part of the 70 listed by Hippolytus. It's interesting. The Lord appoints 70. He tells them to go two by two. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. There's a lot of people that need to hear the gospel message. Not enough people to take it to them. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. What was Jesus really saying to the 70? I need you. I need you. What is he saying to you? I need you. I need you to share the good news. The harvest is plenty. There's plenty of people that haven't heard it even still. I need you. I need you to tell them. But is it going to be easy? He says, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Is that a good thing? Is this your Thanksgiving dinner? You're gonna be, are you serving lamb amongst wolves? Maybe you'll serve turkey. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be dangerous. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Salute no one on the road. Stay focused. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Peace be to this house. Peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a blessing on that house. Jesus, when he comes on Easter night after the resurrection, first thing he says, peace be with you. Shalom. When he enters through the locked doors, he says again the second time, peace, before he breathes the Holy Spirit onto them. So bless the house, heal the sick, And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's not indwelling you yet, but it's come near. It'll indwell you when you're baptized in the Trinitarian formula in Matthew, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's near to you now. It's going to dwell in you after Pentecost. The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets. Even the dust of that town, if it clings to your feet, wipe it off, just like last week. The kingdom of God has come near. Woe to Corazon, woe to Bethsaida. For if the works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they'd have pented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. It'll be more tolerable, the judgment for Tyre and Sidon, than for you. And Capernaum, he who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. He's saying right there that the Father and I are one. If you reject me, you reject the Father. They don't really know that theology yet of the Trinity, but it's there. So the 70 returned with joy, filled with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Why did he fall? Pride. Don't get puffed up. Don't get puffed up that the demons are subject to you. Satan got puffed up and he fell like lightning. I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions, all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, are your names written in heaven? Is your name written in the book of life right now? Good Catholics. Some of you don't don't know for sure. (laughs) Paul said to the Philippians that women and those who have labored side by side with me for the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, their names are written in the book of life. In Revelation, we hear a lot about the Lamb's book of life. He told the church at Sardis, he who conquers shall be clad in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And in revelation 20, we're told that the dead will be judged and listen. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it and his present earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing there before the throne and the books, plural, the books were opened. Also another book was opened, which is the book of life. Hmm. So books, plural and the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done by their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21 says that nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We want our names written in that book. If your name is in that book, will it be in there forever? It's written in there today, will it be in there forever? Names can be blotted out of the book of life. We just heard it in Revelation. I will not blot out. Apparently, they can be blotted out. When the ecstasy of the golden calf happened in Exodus 32, Moses was so distraught. He's going to intercede on behalf of the people. And he says, they've done such a great sin. I'm going to have to go now before the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you, Aaron. And he says to the Lord, but now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, Lord, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Blot me out of your book of life, Lord God. He is going to go to that extent to plead on their behalf, the grumbling Israelites. He's a great intercessor. Jesus is going even farther than that. He's going to leave the Father, the throne room of the Father, and come and intercede on behalf of us. Moses is willing to give up the book of life. Jesus will give up the throne room of the Father also, the new Moses. So just as names can be written in the book of life, blot me, I pray thee, out of the book which thou hast written, O Lord, said Moses. Now the Mishnah states that the book of life records man's deeds, knowing what is above thee, a seeing eye, and a hearing ear, and thy deeds written in a book. And when the Jews celebrate Rosh Hashanah, it's the Jewish New Year. And the most common greeting is not, Happy New Year, March. Happy New Year, Joan. Happy New Year, Hank. It's the greeting, the New Year's greeting is, may your name be inscribed in the book of life, Beth. May your name be inscribed in the book of life, Kelsa. That's how you greet someone. Because for the Jews, it's a year-by-year re-examining of your life. Where are you? It's an examination of conscience is what it is. And the Talmud states this, that there are three books for the Jews that are opened in heaven on Rosh Hashanah every year. One for the thoroughly wicked. It's called the book of death. You don't want to be in that one. One for the thoroughly righteous. It's called the book of life. And one for the, eh, (laughs) the intermediate. The lukewarms that he will spew from his mouth. Don't be an intermediate either. But what does that remind you of? A book of death, a book of life, and a eh, Heaven, hell, and purgatory, a time for purification because nothing unclean can enter the kingdom of heaven. And thoroughly righteous are inscribed in the book of life, thoroughly wicked in the book of death, and the fate of the intermediate is suspended until Yan Kippur, which is the day of atonement. How much atoning do you need for your sins? How bad have you been? Nothing unclean shall ever come into it, but only those names who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So Rosh Hashanah is a yearly time of reflection for the Jews. And Rabbi Simeon Yochai put it this way, and he takes it right from Ezekiel 33. And listen, if you can get blotted out of the book, even if he is perfectly righteous all his life, but rebels at the end, he destroys his former good deeds. For it is said, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. Just the opposite. And even if one is completely wicked all his life, but repents at the end, this is a deathbed conversion repents at the end. He is not reproached with this wickedness for it is said, and as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness. So right before the moment you die, you repent of your sins, have the anointing of the sick. The priest hears your sins, gives you absolution, get out of jail free card, right? (laughs) Don't do that. Because no one knows the day or hour and always live ready. But we do have these different things. Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. Keep reflecting, keep confessing your sin. Keep using the sacrament of reconciliation so that you know that your name is written in the book, always. Okay, now the story of the good Samaritan. Only Luke has it. It's a beautiful story. And behold, a lawyer stood up. To put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this lawyer, some translations will say scholar, stood up to do what? To put Jesus to the test. He wants to challenge him. You know the type, right? (laughs) We have some sons like that. Uh, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, well, you have answered right. Do this and you will live. So he's doing the vertical and the horizontal. Luke tells us to pick up our cross every day and follow him. The vertical is to love God. The horizontal is to love your neighbor. Uh, he should have stopped there. That would have been good. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer Desiring to what? Another bad motive to justify himself, said to Jesus, "And who is my neighbor?" Uh, 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 oh, he shouldn't. Have, he should have stopped while he was ahead. Because it says in Leviticus, "You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself." I am the Lord. So, to the Jews, they stayed separate. They're the separate ones. They stayed separate. So their neighbors are themselves, their own relatives, their friend, their family. They're all Jews. And when he says, who is my neighbor, Jesus is going to extend the definition of who a neighbor really, really, really is. And it's going to be hard because we all have the same Father. Jesus has just said that, that he and the Father are one. If you reject me, you reject my Father. Now he's saying that all humanity is neighbors. We all have the same Father. That means Jesus is our brother. We're all siblings. And Christ is our brother. Martin Luther King understood this well. He uses this in his very last sermon. Martin Luther King understood the parable of the Good Samaritan is what he used in his I've been to the mountaintop speech on the day before his assassination, April 3rd, 1968. He was assassinated the very next day after preaching on the Good Samaritan. Why did he go to Memphis, Tennessee? In 1968, two men were crushed in a garbage truck. More than 1,300 Memphis, Tennessee sanitation workers went on strike. And they just wanted dignity of the human person. And they held up signs that said, I am a man. And they were, had dismal wages and horrible working conditions. And Martin Luther King Jr. came, preached this beautiful sermon, and said, and who is my neighbor? And he knew, he said, uh, using this story. So the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what's going to happen to me? And the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop and help this man, what's going to happen to him? He cared more about the man, and he understood that all men were neighbors. Men and women all had the same father, and all should be afforded the same dignity as a human person, a beloved son of God or a beloved daughter of God. And he was assassinated the next day. He knew that we are all neighbors. He knew that we all had the same father. We've got some difficult days ahead, he said, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind like anybody. I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So in this story with Jesus, the lawyer wants to justify himself. He says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem's the highest geographical place in Israel. So anything from Jerusalem is going down. So he's going down geographically from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's called the way of blood, this highway. Still to this day of the blood that's often shed there by robbers, marauders, thieves. It's a horrible, horrible, dangerous road the road to Jericho. And some people walk it to this day. They'll hire a guide, maybe. Some try it on their own. But you see the Jericho road, the little skinny road, and there's a wadi. If there's a flash flood, if if it starts raining, which isn't often, but there will be flash flooding in the area. It's very narrow, very treacherous on high ledges. This is what the terrain looks like, pure desert. This is where Elijah was hiding from Queen Jezebel in these caves when the ravens came and brought food for him. St. Gregory's Monastery is there, Greek Monastery, because they wanted to be near where Elijah was fed by the ravens. David also prayed the 23rd Psalm here. He wrote it here. And so you understand some of the language in the Psalm better, like the psalmist also says that the grass withers. It would just be a flash of grass. If there was a flash flood, the grass might grow and wither in a day because of the extreme heat. But when David says something like, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's this road. That's this Jericho road. I will fear no evil for you are with me. And there's the road, skinny, meandering, very, very skinny. All, you know, one or two people at a time can be on it. And one donkey single file, a burro can maybe do it because they have sure footing on the clefts sometimes. And so this is the road they were on. The traveling man fell among robbers who stripped him, who beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Well, priest can't touch death. The other side, there's not much room. He skirts around him, intentionally trying not to touch him because a priest can't touch death. The next is from the Levitical tribe, which is also a priesthood. He came. He saw, saw him. He also passed by the other side. It's a huge interruption in my schedule today. I don't have time for this. Do you ever feel that way? <laughs> If he treats this guy, I mean, he doesn't have time for this. Have you ever avoided someone in the grocery store? I can't run into her. Oh my gosh, I've got all talk for 20 minutes. I don't have time. The true test, my spiritual director says the true test of humility is, how open are you to surprises in your life that change your schedule up quite a bit? This guy's not up for it today. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The Greek word is he was moved with pity. And he went up to him and he bound his wounds and he poured on oil and wine. This is where David wrote, you anoint my head with oil. And he set him on his own beast, set him on his very own beast and brought him to an inn. And this inn is still there today. It's not the original one, but it's the same location where the inn would have been. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he's coming back. He plans on it. Now, Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, Well, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the word (laughs) Samaritan. The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. So neighbor has a brand new definition with Jesus. It's anyone in the human family. God is our father. We are all brothers and sisters. St. Augustine had the most incredible spiritual allegory for this parable, and I'd like to share it with you. He says that the Samaritan is really Jesus Christ. You have to think of this in a spiritual way now, so put your spiritual ears and eyes on, okay? So Jesus is the good Samaritan, and Adam is the man who is wounded by sin, Beaten and left half dead. Satan and the other fallen angels, the demons, are the thieves that have robbed Adam of his dignity and of his immortality, leaving him half dead. He's not fully alive anymore, right? He was supposed to have abundant life, everlasting, eternal life. He's half dead because of sin. The old priesthood in the Old Testament, the old covenant passes by. It can't save Adam's beastly flesh. He can't keep the law. He can't keep 613 Mishnah laws. This isn't going to save him, this priesthood. It's burning up cows and bulls, and it's not going to be sacrifice sufficient enough. Jesus Christ, the good Samaritan, joins man's humanity. He comes, and he joins his flesh. He's dual-natured, fully God and fully man. Samaritans had some ancestry that was Jewish because they're from the northern tribe. They're mixed. They come back after the Assyrian exile, and they intermarry. And so a Samaritan is kind of a bridge between the Jews and the Gentiles, half, half. And Jesus is going to be this good Samaritan, this bridge between Jew and Gentile. Jesus heals the man's wounds with oil and wine. This is very sacramental. This balm, this healing balm, we see oil and wine in the sacraments of the church. Baptism, the chrism. Eucharist, the wine. Confirmation, the chrism. Marriage, the feast of Cana, the wine is flowing. Holy orders, the anointing of the head and the hands of the priest, anointing of the sick, the oil. Adam is set on the beast. The beast is the incarnation. Jesus takes on beastly flesh and puts Adam on it. He's going to get him to wear. He picks him up, puts him on his own beast, and he takes on human, beastly flesh. He becomes the second Adam, joins with Adam, and takes Adam to where? The inn, and Augustine says the inn is the church. Adam is taken to the inn for further healing. After Jesus has already met him, he's had an encounter with Christ. Now he goes to the church. The inn is the church. It's what Jesus has established as his kingdom on earth for mankind's further healing. Once you've encountered Christ, you've fallen in love with him, now the church is going to help you the rest of your life till the journey home, till you get to the promised land. In this icon, we see Peter who preached the gospel to the Jews and Paul who preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus has paid two denarii. He paid for sin and he paid for death. He paid the debt for both sin and death. He's paid two denarii for the Jews and the Gentiles for sin and for death. And the good Samaritan, Jesus tells the innkeeper, what? I'll be back. He's coming back again. To what? To judge the living and the dead. He will be back. So quite an amazing spiritual analogy that Augustine sees there. If you pray with that analogy, you'll see more things will open up. Last thing, Jesus Christ is in the home of Martha and Mary. He goes on his way. He enters a village. He sees a woman named Martha. She receives him into her home. She has a sister named Mary, who was at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. Listening. She's listening to his teaching. That's exactly what we were told to do by the Father last week at the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor. He said, This is my beloved Son. What? Listen to him. That's what she's doing. She's sitting at his feet listening. At that Transfiguration were two brothers and Peter, James and John. James is active. He'll become the first bishop of Jerusalem, the one beheaded by Herod and Agrippa. John is more contemplative. There are two sisters in this story. Martha is active, Mary is more contemplative sitting at the feet of Jesus. But Martha's distracted with much serving, and she says to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. I mean, pill of potatoes, Mary. (laughs) Get back in the kitchen. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needed, one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the good portion which shall not be taken away from her. Choose the eternal, choose the better part, choose a portion that's eternal that won't be taken away the time you spend with the Lord. All the things we do, all the activities, running, this Thanksgiving dinner that we're going to cook. Ladies, you know how much work this is going to take. Someone help me. peel the potatoes. Come on. They're going to be here soon. Can you get the chair set up? and Come on, get the napkins. Someone get the water glasses. Right? Because everyone's going to want to eat it. But you know what? In a few hours, this will be in the latrine. It's all going to pass away. What's going to last? What's going to be the eternal? This is the better part. Make sure you spend time with the Lord. Sit at his feet. Thank him for all his many blessings because this is the eternal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise and thank you. We thank you for this chapter. Help us to be like Mary and to know the better part, the eternal part, the part that won't pass away, and that's love because in the beatific vision, you are love. Amen. You just heard the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 10, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.